Um, okay, so do you want to get right into it then, Kath? Oh, good. That's my longtime friend, Kathy. You may be able to tell she's Minnesotan. In 2006, she found herself on a jury. So the crime was two relatively young minority men, one black, one Native American. We didn't have like a perfect set of evidence, but again, we weren't trying to prove that he killed him. We were just trying to decipher exactly what happened. What I think elevated the whole process is, is that the DA wanted murder one, because that's what took us an extra day and a half in sequestration was to discuss whether or not the prosecutor had actually proved intent or not. But the reality is he pulled out a gun and shot him. So sequestration, it's usually reserved for cases that are very high profile. Kathy still doesn't know why her jury was sequestered for two nights. Were they still smoking in hotels back then? No. I wish I could tell you the name of the victim, but I couldn't find the crime, and Kathy couldn't remember the men's names. Though at the time, they were seared into her brain. And so today, on Dead to Me, Kathy and I talk about the arduous process of jury selection, the trial, and sequestration. Yeah, I actually went out to try to dig up some more of the details because it's been so long that I was like, it's been like 14 years. Probably one of the most memorable parts of the experience is how unclear things are kind of every mm -hmm. step of the way. Like, that's not to say that as a jury, you don't get really clear instruction in written form and whatever. It's all very well laid out from the standpoint of the, the judge. But the whole process kind of from start to finish is sort of like walking through a mystery because there are a lot of parts of it that we didn't really understand. So, you know, when I get called for jury duty and I showed up that morning, um, you know, they go through all of this explanation of like, you know, if you're not selected for a case, how you kind of go on standby and, you know, you could get called back other days or whatever, how you're supposed to call in. But that first day in this really large room at the courthouse or at the government center, you know, there's tons and tons more people there than would ever serve on one jury. I mean, it's probably like, 20 juries worth of people. They just started rattling off names for a whole bunch of us. I think it was close to 50 migrate to another room. So we, we didn't know why, but we were obviously being considered for a jury and then we were sort of escorted there. Um, and then we were actually in a really large courtroom. It was larger, I think, than the one where the trial actually happened, but it was a really big room and we were all given this very thick questionnaire that we had to sit and fill out. And again, you don't, you're not told anything about what's happening. We had no idea if there was like an existing case or if this was just like some sort of exercise to evaluate our biases or what. What was the questionnaire like? In hindsight, I can see that it was really about assessing bias because there were so many factors in the case that if somebody had a really strong position against it or if they had any sort of history of their own that could prevent them from being objective as a juror. So there were very specific questions about like our individual histories all the way up to including like are there any barriers that would prevent you from serving on a trial, excuses why you might have to try to get out of it or like your primary caregiver or something like that. Right, right. Um, and so it was stuff like that, but it was also, you know, what are you basically, what are your feelings about weapons? What are your feelings about drug use? What kind of history? It was very personal. Yeah. really personal, like kind of almost invasive. You had to answer it completely and truthfully, obviously, or you could 
there were ramifications to that. We all spent time filling it out. I want to say it took, you know, 20, 25 minutes just to sit and fill it out. Then we were all numbered off. I have, I luckily happened to be number one out of 50, right. but because they had to then pour through all that stuff, we were dismissed for the day and we were given a process for calling in to find out the status of whether we had to come in for the day. And so for mm -hmm. like the next couple days, like I want to say like three days, each one of us came in and were interviewed. So we sat in the courtroom and that was, that was the first moment that it felt uncomfortable too, because the the accused and the attorneys are in the courtroom. So, you know, we sat like alone in the jury box. At this point, did you know it was a murder mm -mm. trial? No. I knew it was a violent crime. That's all I knew. You know, again, and just like the written exercise, the in-person exercise was even more unsettling because you're being asked all sorts of really personal questions. They had read through and probably highlighted and oh. rejected people and whatever. So if you're there, they, they think that you might be a viable juror, but you've got both sides. You've got the, the district attorney side, and then you've got the defendant. And so they're all looking at it if someone's going to be advantageous to them on the jury. Sure. So they're both asking their own questions. And again, they were just very personal What's a, for instance, have you ever been the victim of a violent crime yourself? Okay. Okay. Yes. So what was that? Oh, good. Now I get to talk about my sexual assault. Right. <laughs> but you know, again, all for the, on the basis of establishing if you could be a good juror and if you could be unbiased. And I remember the most probably at the very end when they said, so you indicated here that you have a concern about being able to continue on a jury over a protracted period because of your employment. And they said, can you talk more about that? And I said, well, yes. I mean, I'm, you know, very new in a current job and I'm, well, they don't give a shit. I mean, you basically right. all but have to be about to donate an organ, I sure, think. Sure. Basically, they cut right to the, each of the attorney panels getting asked if they felt that I would be a fit juror, which they both agreed to. And so then all of a sudden I know I'm on the jury. So I'm excused, go home until I know that, you know, I have to keep calling back in to find out if the jury is seated. So as soon as the jury is set, including the alternates, so they know they've got enough people to see it through, then it just becomes a matter of when the, in, you know, the initial court date starts, you know, so then I think we, like the whole process started, it was like a couple of days to seat the jury. And then I want to say it was like another one or two days till the actual first, like oh. the morning, the trial began. Oh. The first day or two is exceptionally slow because you have to get all of this instruction. We had to choose a jury foreman. We had to kind of talk amongst ourselves and get a little bit acquainted. But then we get this enormous instruction packet from the judge. Um, so this is all going on without the defendant in the room, or how is that? Yeah. So I mean, the whole the whole trial, the defendant is there, but as a jury, we are basically in kind of a different chambers at that okay. point when we're first brought in and we're going through all this instruction, and we're told what we have to do, which included picking the jury foreman, um, who then read through the rest of the instructions, and I think that's when it really became clear that we were dealing with a murder trial, and it gave us a ton of information about like how we were to be working. What were some of the factors? What were the definitions of things like intent? I mean, there was a lot of very like specific mm -hmm. definition from the law because the initial charge and what the DA was going for in prosecution was murder one, which is, you know, the highest degree murder right. because it involves premeditation and intent. Mm -hmm.
so there was a ton of like just definition that we had to go through and try to understand but there was also a lot of instruction for like how the trial would work and what kind of breaks we would get and what we would do for lunch <laughs> you know so all this other stuff i have i would have been like yes go on lunch is when Bathroom yeah. <laughs> Is there a caribou coffee or Starbucks? <laughs> Super salad. We were all to stay together. We were not to talk to anybody else. We weren't, you know, we would be taken to the cafeteria type space at certain yeah. times, but we were all to sit together. We were not to talk to anybody. We were not to use our phones, communicate with anybody, whatever. I mean, so it was very clear, like, yeah. you're here to do this job. You're here to not be influenced by anybody else. You're just you know, so that we would kind of like move around as this little pod of people. We were always <laughs> escorted by deputies. Could you go potty by yourself? Yeah, but I remember, I do remember like they had to kind of like take us to and stand outside the door. The other thing that I remember about the first few days is just that it felt like it just moved at a glacial pace. From a juror's perspective, you're not, it's like having someone present you content pieces at a time and at various times the judge or the attorneys might need time to like regroup and prepare for the next thing so then mm -hmm. we're dismissed so it felt like we had a lot of downtime initially because they're transitioning witnesses or they're documenting things or they're you know recording stuff or whatever it is we just go back to our chambers and be like so where do you live were you sequestered straight away mm -mm. No, during trial, we, we went home. So tell me about the crimes. I was doing some research last night on jury sequestration, and it's usually only in very high-profile high cases. Profile. I mean, there's some obvious ones like OJ or Zimmerman or Casey Anthony and those things, but it's not used as much as I thought it maybe would be. Mm -hmm. um, tell me a little bit about the crime. When did they decide and why did they decide to sequester you guys? One of the interesting things about the trial was that there was no question of guilt. In this case, there was no question about that, which again was also not initially clear. It took like a day or two for us to really realize that they were not suggesting that the accused did not kill the, the victim. Mm -hmm. It was more a question of whether or not it was premeditated or intended or like there were a lot of other extenuating circumstances. And because the prosecutor was going for murder one, mm -hmm. that bar is really high sure. to try to prove that. Um, so that's another thing that made it interesting because there wasn't, there was a presumption of guilt. It wasn't like we were asked to figure out if he was guilty. There was video footage. Like it's clear that he pulled so the trigger. Was it told to you then, was it explained to you that he had made um, a plea? To this day, I don't really know what led up to the trial in terms of, it. you know, it was clear that he pulled the trigger. It was clear that okay. the victim died. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but to the degree that like the prosecutor and the defendant, the defend defense team had negotiated something up until a certain point. I don't know. I mean, it's obviously, mm -hmm. it's very clear that he probably just admitted to having done it. What I think elevated the whole process is, is that the DA wanted murder one. So what was the actual crime? And then, so the crime was two relatively young minority men, one black, one native American had encountered one another one night in South Minneapolis. And what was not clear 
along the way was whether or not they had previously known each other or mm-hmm. if they just had interacted based on a drug transaction. It was clear that they had interacted earlier that day or earlier that evening, but it was not clear whether or not they knew each other previously. But they basically met up on the basis of a drug transaction. The defense's position was that the victim became aggressive and that that's what led to the defendant pulling a gun. The the DA's position was that the defendant was pissed off about a previous interaction and went after the victim with prior intent to hurt him or kill him. That's actually the most interesting part of the whole thing because that's what took us an extra day and a half in sequestration was to discuss whether or not the prosecutor had actually proved intent or not. But the reality is he pulled out a gun and shot him, killed him in front of the gas station. And the gas station footage is like stop action. One second, Mm -hmm. one second, one second. So there were like breaks in the video. It was, it was, we didn't have like a perfect set of evidence, but again, we weren't trying to prove that he killed him. We were just trying to decipher exactly what happened. What point did you need to be sequestered and why? Well, that's a great question. Again, I don't know if they went into it knowing that, that we were not necessarily told that early on. We knew that the trial would take however long and it ended up taking a couple of weeks. Oh, Jesus Christ. Again, because it feels like it moves at a glacial pace, but I mean, it's it's funny. You don't realize how biased you are based on movies or TV shows that you've seen, but you have this idea of it like kind of moving along. In reality, yeah. it's a very slow process. <laughs> and in a very impressive way, I remember walking out of the whole thing feeling a little bit more reassured that there that you can reach justice because it was such a thorough process. Like it wasn't rushed through it didn't feel like like the idea of the justice system working is a nice one for white good white ladies like you and I from the midwest another reason i guess i felt good about it is that they were both minorities and i felt mm-hmm. like the process was really thorough it wasn't like well we just have a black guy and a in a native american so whatever right. you know it was sort of like this this was going to get the justice it deserved no matter that they were both you know, frankly, they both weren't good guys. They both right. were troubled. They both were into drugs. They both, you know, were shady. So, but they still got a fair trial. I think it was still a very yeah. thorough process. Well, and that's a good point because the thing is, is that I guess what I should should say is that it would have been a different story if the victim had been white. Potentially, yeah. I mean, sure. And then maybe it would have even gotten more public attention. To your question about why or when did they select sequestration? I I don't know that. My hunch is, like you said, it's not used all the time, but my hunch is that because it was murder one, because I think in those neighborhoods it got a ton of attention, as evidenced by all the people that showed up on conviction day, which was uh, super uncomfortable. You know, I would imagine there was just a lot of pressure to get it right. And there was enough violence surrounding it in the neighborhoods. Maybe they just thought there was a safety component in us being sequestered. I don't know. So we we did the whole trial process, which there's a lot more to that too. That's it turns funny and stressful and whatever. I mean, just the whole process of how we're introduced to witnesses and what the witnesses were there to talk about. I mean, some of them were pretty entertaining. Like um, what? 
<laughs> well, like one was we were put back into our little room and it wasn't like a regular break or lunch or anything like that. It was just, a, we were just sitting back there for what felt like forever. And finally the deputy came to get us and march us back into the room. And normally in the rest of the trial, you know, we'd be seated and then a witness would be brought in or brought up to the stand. And when we walked in, there was already a witness on the stand. And there were a whole bunch of cops in the room. Oh, God. It was a jailhouse snitch. It was a, it was a, well, it was a prisoner <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, who had some relatively interesting perspective on one or both of the people involved. Oh, um, my God. But it, it was That's a security cool. measure. Like, he was probably handcuffed up there. I don't know. I couldn't see. Oh, they didn't want to prejudice you against right. him immediately, like seeing him do a but, perp walk. But again, you're like, he's already there, so something's already different. And there's a whole bunch of other cops in the room. So we got it. We can smell what you're stepping in, Minnesota. He answered questions pretty well, and he had some insight into one or both of the guys, like I said. The other one that was my favorite by far, by far, was this woman who lived like half a block down from the gas station who claimed that she had witnessed some of what happened. You know, she was asked these questions about like what she saw. And the best, so the best part is she's going through this whole thing about like, what she saw and what was happening and whether or not the defendant was like how many people were there at the time was were either of the p other either the victim or the defendant were they with anybody else or blah blah you know so the best part is though she goes they go through all this questioning and she's just funny and then <laughs> the end of the questioning they said could you please confirm basically could you please identify the man that you saw there like clearly they're referring to the defendant sure and she looks around and she's like, well, he's not here. <gasps> oh, no. <laughs> at, at which point, literally one of the, the jurors right behind me was like, <laughs> like trying really hard not to laugh. And we're all like, and I remember both sets of attorneys were like, um, like they had no idea what to do. Like she had invalidated her entire testimony. What the? Was she old? Was she? No. No. I mean, she wasn't that old. It was so fucking funny. I just remember being like, "Did they restate the question? Did the judge? What did the was the judge like?" Um, uh. Well, I remember. I it, yeah. One of the attorneys recovered first and said something like, <laughs> "Obviously, they couldn't specifically tell her to point the defendant, so they couldn't really sure. directly acknowledge the defendant." But right. I do remember one of them recovered and like restated whether or not she could identify anybody that she saw that night in in the courtroom. Right. And she still said no. So, oh my God. <laughs> so like, other oh. than that, other than that and the very obvious prisoner, I mean there weren't that <laughs> many other witnesses. Did they did they then say that like, we should disregard, you, yeah. Disregard her testimony. Yeah. Although they did say they kind of caveated that with, if you, you know, that's up for us to determine if we felt like any of the information, even if she couldn't like, because it was dark oh, sure. out, you sure, know, it was sure, dark sure. out and she was no, that, that makes obviously sense. kind of flighty. Yeah. She's so she did provide a few details of what seemed to jive with what happened in terms of they were coming oh. from opposite ends of the street and they met, you know, where they did and da da da. Okay. There was a kerfuffle. Somebody was shot, you know. Right, right. But there was enough of it that was not, wouldn't have been public knowledge at that sure. point. So I honestly think in her mind, she was like, I couldn't tell you for sure. Oh, Because well, it was yeah. dark and I was at a distance. 
Oh my um, God. So was there anyone to corroborate that? Well, the video, I mean, the video okay. footage from okay. the gas station, it was clear enough what happened in general, but when it came down to picking apart details for the conviction, it was just hard to determine who became aggressive first. Like, and that was a big deal in terms of intent. And Did again, the other dude have a weapon? Well, that's the thing. I mean, again, there it, we couldn't see anything other than the fact that he was shot. The defense <laughs> made the case that he was aggressive and the defendant thought that he had a, a weapon or thought that he was going for a weapon because you could see yeah. that he reached in. Yeah. The defense's yeah. assertion was actually that he shouldn't be charged at all, that it was self-defense. Um, when the trial wrapped up, and it was clear oh, so that the trial the trial was done. Like they were very clear about like that's that's it. That's it for the trial portion. And now you're gonna go into deliberations. I mean, and they've got a whole bunch more instructions on deliberations and what how we had to work through that process. They took all of our phones. And if we wanted to see any of the evidence again, or if we wanted transcripts, or if we want we had to request it. But I think then I'm trying to remember, it must have been the day before when they knew that the trial was gonna be done that we were told we wouldn't be going home when we came back in the next day, if we didn't reach a verdict. So I knew the night before to like bring a toothbrush and you know, right. whatever, that I was gonna lose my phone. And so yeah, when we were done deliberating for the day, we were paired up. So I had to share a hotel room with one oh. of the other jurors, a woman. Oh. oh. We were told not to watch TV. I don't know if anybody did turn on TV or do anything else, but we were told to just go in the room, you know, hang out, go to bed. And then the next day we were brought back to the government center yeah. to continue deliberations. Then the next night, because we didn't reach a, a verdict, they moved us to a different hotel. Oh. So they were going to move us. Yep. So they were going to move us around every night. And then the third day is when we reached the conviction or we reached okay, the verdict. So so totally vapid question, but where'd they put you up? Oh, uh, it was like one of them was the, a, like a holiday in kind of by the university. Oh. Right off the highway. It wasn't bad. No, yeah. they weren't seedy. They were fine. Yeah. Um, and did you guys all have to stay together? Like what was the? Well, once we went in our room, we were not to come out and we were all with another juror. Your juror friend who you're in a room with, right? Yeah, it was like sipping on vanilla tea. I mean, she was super boring. She was but nice enough, but like I. The, but can you talk? We were about told it? we were told not to talk about it. So I think probably everybody danced around the, the edges of it a little bit, just talking about the experience of it. But we were told not to like deliberate separately yeah. because again, they don't want us to come back in with pods of opinions that had formed outside of a, a deliberation room. So, you know, in the end, the the additional basically day and a half of it was that, you know, there were, again, there were components of the crime of murder one, which you have to prove. And we checked several things off the list that we had come to agreement on, but the one remaining one was intent. And a portion of the jury felt, and this is where all of it is so emotional because you realize that you're checking yourself along the way of like, am I making an assumption? Am I biased here because these guys were, you know, druggies? Right. Am I making an assumption based on my perception of other people in the courtroom? Am I, you know, like what am I, what am I adding to this that's not, has not been presented to me as a fact? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. also emotionally, again, knowing that you have, justice for somebody who was murdered, but you also have the life of this person who's been accused in your hands. 
Mm-hmm. And so like, what does that mean for him and for everybody else involved in the situation if we don't get it right? Mm-hmm. And this whole idea of intent was fascinating because we didn't have, you know, audio of their conversation. We didn't have any other history to suggest really strong history to suggest that like they had a long-standing combative relationship or something like we didn't there wasn't anything on the surface to show that he went deliberately to kill him yeah and the video didn't really prove that necessarily well and so what was the but so my my question because i think intent has to be incredibly hard to prove mm-hmm. right if you don't know somebody that well but they're like a there has to be something to gain Right. Right. So probably like the most emotional moments of the whole thing were certainly the last day because we were all strung out. We were all exhausted. And because you're really trying not to take it out on each other at that point, like if you just simply don't see it the same way and you can't come to agreement, at some point it's like having a protracted argument with somebody and you're just like, like, how can you still think that like you're just Mm -hmm. at an impasse? Mm-hmm. And the the struggle with it really, and I, I thought we ended up working to the right place. We all eventually had to concede that even if we do think he went out again that night because he was pissed off about this drug deal or pissed off about he had the intention of confronting this guy, we all agreed eventually that the prosecutor did not prove that he went in there to do anything other than confront him. And that something, one thing led to another, and it just went south really quick. We also, some some people actually still believe that he was maybe acting in self-defense. I mean, so we were like, you know, because we couldn't tell how the aggression really amped up in that moment. So what um, were your options? Was it murder one, murder two, manslaughter? Was there a list yep, of charges? there were four of them. Yep, there okay. were four charge, potential charges. And what were they? Murder one, there were two different versions of murder two, I think, and then maybe like a manslaughter. And we ended up on one of the murder twos. But in the end, is I mean, people were in tears in the end because they just felt like in their heart that it had played out a certain way. And But what we had to keep coming back to was the instruction was very clear. You can't base this judgment on your gut. You have to base it on what the facts are that are presented to you. And that part of it was, again, extremely compelling because we all make gut judgments every day. We all make decisions based on what we believe is the right set of facts and what our perceptions are. You know, that's how we have to run our lives every day. But when you're presented with this really serious situation and told that you can't base a judgment off of that, where was the evidence for that? Where we're, you know, I understand that you feel that way, and I'm not suggesting that maybe you're not right, mm-hmm. but were you given evidence to support, to prove, because you have to prove intent, like you said. Yeah. And they couldn't point to anything. So they had to basically concede what they think was his intent. So they thought that he couldn't. had intended to do it based on nothing except he meant to do it. Well, based on enough of what they stitched together of, you know, the various people that were presented as witnesses or the bits and pieces we heard about him, the defendant and his life and mm-hmm. the fact that he went out to go find this guy that night because he was pissed off, you know, but being pissed off doesn't mean you intend to go kill somebody. That's right. So I think it, there was enough there. It wasn't just like a feeling like it was just enough there that they felt like, how could he not have intended to go take him out? 
in the end, again, we all just came to, but it was funny because the prosecutor was very, very powerful kind of egotistical way of presenting himself. And so when we came back the, the verdict day, when we did not agree to murder one, he was, he literally, his mouth fell open. I think really? he was convinced that he had proved intent. So you could tell he was shocked yeah. <laughs> and not happy. <laughs> um, so yeah, the, the whole verdict day was probably the final piece of it that was really fascinating. Um, so who did you, did you have the same, but the second night of sequestration, like I imagine that has to be the first night is like, okay, novel, you know, this is, this is an inconvenience. Another full day of deliberation and high emotion and knowing everything that you know, and then having to go back again. The end of the second day, there were definitely a few people who were like, let's just get this done. Mm -hmm. They weren't necessarily saying that they were going to sacrifice the process so much as they were just getting really impatient with a few people. And that's where some of the emotion was the second day. It was like, okay, you keep coming back to that. What are you, you know, like, what do you mean? What are you trying to get at with that? Where's your proof? You know, blah, blah, blah. It's like people were becoming more impatient with each other because we, they wanted to get it done. So I think some of it was personality, some of it was stress, some of it was fatigue. I, again, the nice thing is by the end of the second day and by the time we knew that we were going to have to stay over again and come back another day, mm -hmm. I honestly feel like the way everybody showed up the next day, I was curious how it was going to feel that morning. Everybody came, it was almost like it had, everybody kind of had gotten over their own impatience with it and was like, we're going to get this right. If yeah. we're going to put this much of our lives into this and this much time, we're going to get it right. We really did not have, you know, any knockdown drag outs. We didn't have a lot, anybody being super disrespectful. It was like people really felt the gravitas, I think. Mm -hmm. And that, mm -hmm. I mean, that was really reassuring because we're just this random group of people. Now, again, I know that's not always the case and people don't get fair trials and juries are stacked. But in this particular case, I feel like it, it felt like everybody just wanted to do the right thing. The last part of it that was super interesting was the actual verdict day um, because we had reached verdict and then they had to notify, you know, the attorneys and anybody else who was kind of on standby who wanted to show up. And so, you know, the, the courtroom hadn't been very full during during the trial and then we were escorted into the room and it was packed with clearly a lot of people from both sides of the camp it was just you could feel it was like visceral you could just feel the energy and the anticipation um and the emotion in the room it was very different than the rest of the trial that way which kind of felt very clinical i mean it was just a lot of like whoa you know how many people were in there so we're all seated you know, and again, I'm jury num juror number one from the very beginning because we were all numbered off. They go through the four different crimes and we say yes or no to each one. And then they do make us do basically a, a roll call. We're asked to attest to whether or not we agree. <laughs> I mean, honestly, hands down, the most distressing moment of the entire process is when they did that because they didn't say juror number one. They read my entire legal name. Shut. So they said, what? juror number one, Catherine, do you agree with these verdicts? And you could have knocked, I heard like several gasps behind me because I was in the front row of the jury. I mean, we were all just like gobsmacked. 
<gasps> I had no, I mean, why not give out my address too? Like I was like, what? I just will never forget that moment as long as I live because I felt safe in the process. You know, I felt like even though it was kind of a mystery and it was a little weird and whatever, like I, I felt good about the process and I felt like the sequestration was handled well and all these things. And then to have my full legal name read out in the court, I was like, but anyway, so they went around and did the same. They read everybody else's legal names out and had everybody attest to the verdicts. And then it was pretty much like done. And everybody was dismissed and we were walked out by the deputies to this back hallway and they handed back out our cell phones and our personal effects. And we were told we could leave, but that was it. And so the entire group like literally just stood around and somebody was like, did that just happen? <gasps> like what the hell? And then we all agreed we couldn't just stand around in the government center all day. And there was like a bar down the street. It was like 1230 or something. I was like, do you guys want to go for a drink? We were like, yeah. And we all just sat around kind of talking about the whole experience. And I mean, how can you not? It's going into a, like a mini war with a group of people and then going your own, your separate ways. It was just weird. Mm -hmm. um, and for a while, actually, a handful of us stayed in touch and email and we got together a much smaller group, got together once. And then I ended up being really good friends with our jury foreman for a long time. I don't know that anybody walked away feeling like he really was the victim here, you know, because even if the other guy became aggressive first, he was the one that pulled the gun. He was the one that fired a shot, mm -hmm. a couple of shots. Oh, a couple. Um, yeah. So we all knew that he, sh we all agreed that he should be held accountable. And I think the fact that we, I think we all felt like we picked the right conviction Mm -hmm. and you know the general feeling even that day when we all were sitting in the bar talking I think was just that you know just debriefing on how intense it was I mean half of the time was spent talking about why the fuck did they just read our names out <laughs> but once we got over that I think just every the general feeling was like we were exhausted we all just wanted to go home but we all we just felt weird walking away from each other cold turkey and yeah. people were trading email information and yeah. And then, like I say, for like a short burst of time, I think there was this bond that, you know, kept the group communicating a little bit more. Um, and then it just, that just sort of dwindled away after a while. And then I just stayed friends with the foreman. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it just is very intense, but really, really, it, it really interesting, sad. I mean, just to see upfront and personal, the lives of the people involved and how much of a reality that is. You know, it's funny. Um, the reaction that I remember, I did hear, I did see people crying on both sides. Yeah. The reaction that I just stuck out at me the most was the shock of the DA because that was the first, well, I mean, that was the first charge that was read back, you know, and when we said no, he was like, um, so like that took my attention for a minute. And then as they read through the other charges, I did kind of, part of it is it's, it's a weird thing to like be looking around the courtroom and making eye contact with people. It's like, it's already really weird. Other than you kind of like get a sense for who's there and the fact that there are people for both parties and again, some real emotion that's floating around and you could feel the anger. There was definitely anger. I mean, Where do you why think that was coming from? Mostly the victims. Obviously, they yeah. wanted justice. Yeah. He was yeah. killed. 
Now, were you guys involved in the penalty phase or no? No. Mm-mm. That's a judge. I, I, I just imagine it being weird to slide back into your life. Yeah. I mean, what was weird about it is it definitely, it's like flipping a switch to go into it and then flipping a switch to come out of it and not have it be all you're talking about and thinking about all day long and, you know, having to sort of re-engage at work and just kind of get back to life and just not have it be what you're working on. And then the emotional part of it, I mean, I, a lot of people were really interested to hear about it at the time because, you know, you're go off for jury duty and especially in a new job, for example, they're like, well, she'll be back in a few days or a week. Here I am gone for three plus weeks, you know, and, and at one point when before I was sequestered, I was able to communicate to my boss at the time that it was a murder trial and he was just like, oh. but obviously <laughs> I can't talk about it. So people were right. really interested to hear what happened and what went down. And then the fact that I was sequestered, I mean, I think all of it was really interesting to people to hear about. So I did find myself able to like talk about it with people who were interested and all the details were really fresh, but it still was weird because I wasn't like with my jurors at that point, And I wasn't with people who could like really, you know, that's part of why some of us stayed in touch. I think initially is just to kind of decompress a little bit. And then, yeah, it's weird to kind of go off. And at that point, you know, that someone's been convicted of this crime and someone's dead. Did you follow the case then? You know, like I after? did for a period of, yeah, I did for a period of time. My friend Greg, that was the foreman, he was more committed to that, I think, than a lot of the rest of us. I, I sort of relied on him to do that because he wanted to. And I, I also just had given it a lot of energy at that point, And I yeah. had to get back to work. Find out though, that how long the guy got and was he young? Was he older? He was younger. I don't, but that's another detail. I don't remember exactly how long he was sentenced for, nor, nor do I know if he's ever come up for parole or anything. If I can turn up any information on this crime, I will. I've gone through records of the Star Tribune, which is Minneapolis's main paper. I've also looked at minnesotacourts.com, but I don't have a case file. Kathy's going to poke around a bit too, because I think it's important to put a name to the victim. And I also want to know what happened to the guy afterwards, the one that was convicted of second degree murder. But really, I think we need to find out about that whole smoking in hotels thing. Were they still smoking in hotels back then? No. I don't think so. I'm trying to remember when our. I was like, I was just wondering. Up. I'm. I was gonna name your your roommate. I was gonna give her a name like Gladys. I wonder. I was thinking Gladys maybe smoked one of those the Capris or the Capris. Virginia, oh, the Virginia Slims. Virginia Slims. No, she was too vanilla. I got the most boring person. But on the other hand, she was very nice, and she was very like rule following. So I knew she wasn't gonna like try to get off into some snickering debate that I didn't have the energy for. It was like. Oh. Or mean, honestly, let's get real shit on the floor. 